So let's pick up where we left off last week. We've been in this series, The New Man, for several weeks now, um, and, and there's no end in sight. I, I, I gave up a long time ago on trying to map these things out. It, it never goes the way I planned it anyway. So here we are. We have been talking about this new man, what happens when one becomes born again. That is a phrase that was not is not something that makes a lot of sense. In a Jewish mind, when a person was born again, they would be born again several times to a Jew. When they were bar mitzvah, they were born again. When they got married, they were born again. I mean, it was just something that was there. But Jesus is talking about this new man, this born again, new life given. And so what happens in that is that we are now made into the image of Christ. We are all the old is gone, the new has come, that new spirit, that new man that dwells inside of us. We are now as righteous as we can ever become. And that's good. Because if it was based on some qualification system, we'd have problems. Because we'd be up and down all the time. And you know what? The enemy tries to convince you of that all the time. I've talked to people where they're like, man, I just feel like God's turned his back on me. That's not possible. It's, it's not possible because God is with us at all times, bringing us closer to Him. Once we are now regenerated, we can't unregenerate. okay? It's not possible. We are made in the image of Christ, and we need to walk in that and walk in that authority. We see that told to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 12. It says, We do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. Why would you boast in appearance? We can put on a show, folks. It's the heart of the matter. Think of the Wizard of Oz, right? Here's this big green head floating around. Everybody's intimidated about it. And then you pull back the curtain and we got some weird guy that's got a funny voice. Right? It was the heart of the matter. The heart of the guy was nothing. It was just an image he portrayed. We don't boast on that. We boast on the promises of God. The things that we teach up here, that we teach on Sunday mornings, that we teach on Wednesday night, are not wise words of, of mighty men and women that just came to be. This is the Word of God. I will give you nothing but the Word of God. What I bring to the table pales in comparison to what this is. So it's not how we look. It's not how we act. It is who we are. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us. Because we judge thus that if one died for all, then they all died. And he died for all, he being Jesus. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. My goodness, you know, if we could just get the church to start living for him, you know what a difference in the world we'd make? I say the church. Remember, I'm not talking about Grace Church, okay? I mean church big C. We got a lot of people that have made Jesus their Savior, but they've never made him their Lord. They said, yeah, Lord, I don't want to go to hell. I want to be with you. But to make somebody Lord over your life means that he's calling the shots. You've got people that don't want God calling the shots. They want to make up their own decisions. They want to do what they want to do. You'll see somebody who, who grew up very humbly, and then they, they come into some wealth and there's a change that takes place in them. Shouldn't be that way. But there is. There's something about money that drives people from God thinking, I don't need you. I can do this on my own. I was there once in my life. You know, we hit some success and some business stuff. I assumed I was living for the Lord in the way that he wanted me to. But really it was just, I was convinced, man, I can do this on my own. I never came right out and said that, but that's how I thought. As if I had done something. It was all for God. We see that here in the U.S. because we have it so good. 
What do we do when we're sick? We take a pill. We run to Walgreens. We go to the doctor. What if those things weren't around? What would we have to do? I guess I'd have to pray and trust God. As if that's where we should end up instead of where we start. I'm getting off on a tangent. Verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Are you in Christ? Then you're a new creation. Is there any chance that says you might be a new creation? No. He says that you are. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespass to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For we made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is everything. He's given us directives. We are his ambassador, his representative. Therefore, where we go, what we say, and what we do, we are imaging Christ in our workplace, in our daily life. Now think about that for a minute. Because think about when you're out there in the world, are you really, are you the one that should be being looked at as the image of Christ? Because like it or not, you are. Is the way that I conduct myself really bearing the image of Christ? You know where I see a lot of men lose their salvation, so to speak? On the golf course. Oh, Lord, have mercy. There is something about chasing a white ball with a metal stick that makes men come unglued. They'll hit it, and they'll say, doggone it. But they didn't say doggone it. Stan says doggone it. He's got a hat that says it. But, I mean, it's like, oh, my goodness. They, they lose their mind. Golf clubs flying into trees, into lakes. Not on accident, right? Something about it. Something about this game makes men go crazy, right? Why? Are we imaged in that moment? No, we are not. I hope not, okay? I hope God's a better golfer than me, all right? Let's put it that way. But, but the thing is, is we, we, we don't think about that. We don't think about how our daily lives portray Christ into the world. Because you've got the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then your life is the gospel to the world. Hand somebody a Bible and see if they're going to read it. But they'll see everything you do, everything you say. That's why the way we carry ourselves and conduct ourselves are so important. Not for our benefit to Christ, but for the world's benefit to see the creator and the redeemer and the one who has set us free. And he says and we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. Pleading, this is it. We're his representative. This ministry of reconciliation, we have to get that. Because this is what we should be doing, bringing people to Christ. So what was Jesus doing here? And this is what we've been looking at. In 1 John 3, 8, he said, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. So what did he come to do? He came to destroy the works of the devil. That is sin. Sin is what separates us from God. So we know what he was doing, but why was he doing the things he was doing? Remember, this kind of goes back. If you've been gone or you missed something, I'd encourage you to go online. 
or we can probably get you a, a CD of it, of going back to Christmas Eve and, and listening on, on what was going on there, how Christ was fulfilling prophecy down to the day that he was born, the place that he was born, and all the things about the shepherds. We, we kicked over some sacred cows in the whole Christmas tradition. And then we, we got into that, but then last week, we got into this, why was he doing? We see how he fulfilled things up to the point that he was here, but why was he being specific about what he was doing? Because we should look at Christ's life as, as a representative of what we should be doing. And really more so the apostles, but they just carried on what Jesus was doing. So why was he doing what he was doing? Well, we looked at these four messianic miracles. I've got them up here. The messianic miracles were those that which the, the Jews believed that when the Messiah came, that only he would be able to do these things. The first one being cleansing a leper. The reason for that is that they believe that leprosy was given by God to people in judgment of sin. Therefore, the only one who could truly take it away would be God himself or his Messiah. The second thing was the casting out of a deaf and dumb spirit. A demon-possessed person that was mute and could not hear. The reason that they believe that the, only the Messiah could do this is because the rabbis exercised demons, okay? But they would say, so the first thing they would say, well, what is your name? They'd have to get the name of it, and then therefore they'd be able to do this. But if they were deaf and they were dumb, they couldn't speak or they couldn't hear, then you couldn't do this. So what did Jesus do? He did this very thing, right? We saw that last week. We went through the scriptures and looked at this. And so this was huge because only the authority of the Messiah could do this. The third thing was the healing of birth defects, a man born blind, a man born um, lame, whatever. And we saw how he spit in the mud and he, he covered his eyes. And you saw the Pharisees questioning him to the nth degree. Are you sure you were born blind? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. You know, I don't ever remember seeing. But the biggest one was the raising of the dead after three days. They believed that the spirit of an individual stayed with the body up until the third day. But on day four, he's gone. He's out of here. So when Jesus went to Lazarus, and you notice how it specifically mentioned the fourth day twice. And remember what Jesus said to the disciples. He said, I, I said, it is better for you that I have waited so that you could see and that you could believe. And so what they would do is they would come. And when any of these miracles took place, they'd go to the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, and say, hey, the messianic miracle took place. And so therefore they would begin to investigate and question, which is why Jesus had so many problems with the Pharisees. That's why they were always around, because he was performing these miracles. So we saw what he did, and we know why he did it. He was confirming himself as the Messiah. But you know what we didn't talk about? is how he did these things. Because that's the key. Because it does us no good to talk about being ambassadors for Christ and his representative. It's not just in speak. It's not just in conduct. It's doing the things of Christ. So how did he perform these miracles? Is it simply because he's the son of God? It can't be. Because other people were doing these miracles as well. Some of these. Right? We saw that, that the rabbis could cast out demons. They could exercise them. And we've seen the, the, the angel would show up and, and squirrel the water in the pool and they would get in there and somebody would be healed. Right? So healing wasn't just autonomous to the Messiah. Things were going on. So how did he do this? Let's look at this in 1 John chapter 1 in verse 19. This is where we're going to start today. It says, now this is the testimony of John. This is John the Baptist is referring to. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. 
making sure they understood that he's not the Messiah. John was garnering a following. He was getting some attention. So he's making sure they understand. So they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? Why would they ask that question? Because they think Elijah's going to come back. He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? Nope. Then they said to him, well, then who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? Remember, why did they send somebody to investigate John? They thought he might be the Messiah. So they're sending somebody to investigate. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness to make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So Isaiah laid this out. Now those who were sent from the Pharisees, they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, you are not Elijah, and you are not the prophet? Why are you baptizing? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who is coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. Now you notice what he said here. He didn't say there's one that's coming. He said, there's one among you. He's here. These things were done in Betharbara, uh, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. So it gives us a geographic location. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Why is this so profound? They've been sacrificing lambs every Passover. Now that lamb's got a name. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who was preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Who sent John? He said that he who sent me to baptize with water said to me this, 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 and this. Who sent him? It was God. Right? Before he was born, his mother said, hey, your son, he's going to be set apart. He's going to do this. He's going to do all of this kind of stuff. And so he's saying, this is the one who sent me. But the spirit descending and remaining on him. Now, John came. He said, what did he do? He said, I baptize in water. Now, the way they baptize is not the way that you and I think. In fact, the word baptize in and of itself does not mean necessarily what you and I think. It does mean immersion. But what do we think when we hear baptism? We think water. We think we go down, we dunk somebody, we pull them up, and it's powerful, and it's very true. It's an aligning of itself. Now, the Jews, they would baptize themselves often. It was called a mikvah. It was this cleansing. It had to be in what was called living water. Living water came from one of three places, a river, an underground stream of some sort, or rain. And one drop of living water could cleanse unliving water, dead water, I guess would be the you know, one drop of rain. If you had a pool of water there, one drop of rain would now make that living water. But they wouldn't touch them typically. So when we see John the Baptist in the movie dipping people over, he may have done that, but not likely. Because one, they didn't typically touch them and especially would not touch a woman at all. So they would likely go under their own authority here, their own power in doing this. But he says, I baptize with water. But look, there's another usage here. He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. It's the one that the Spirit descends upon and remains on him. It's he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're going to talk about today. 
is this baptism in the Holy Spirit. In fact, I'm going to show you in Scripture, the Bible talks about three baptisms. And so this isn't going to be a bunch of hoopla, and this isn't going to be anything but Scripture. That's all we're going to do. Now, John says that I saw the Spirit descending on him. So let's go look at that passage and see what happened in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said, and permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. Now, let's pause there. Let's think about what baptism is. Water baptism. Water baptism is aligning yourself with somebody. Those who were baptized by John were aligning themselves with John and his teaching. This happened all the time. When a rabbi would come in and he would choose his disciples, they would be baptized by them, thus aligning themselves with them. So what do we do when we baptize someone with water today? We are showing the world that they are aligning themselves with Christ. They have made him their savior. Okay? Now, look at verse 16. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, there's a lot going on here. But John had said, as we saw before, the one who the Spirit descends upon and stays. The statement wasn't anything new, but this actually comes from two uh, powerful scriptures that has messianic implications. The first of which is Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. It says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Today I have set you apart, chosen you. Isaiah 42, verse 1 is the other one. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. You notice it talks about the spirit being upon, not within, because there's a distinction there. We know, because we've looked at this before, when a person is born again, they are filled with the spirit. But this is talking about the spirit being upon them. But here's the thing in this whole passage that just boggles my mind. He comes up from the water. They watch the Holy Spirit descend like a dove. So was it a flapping bird-looking thing, or was it just coming down like a bird, like a dove? I don't know. I wasn't there. There's no videotapes of it. Now think about if that happened today. It'd be all over Facebook, right? Like, hey, check this out. But they hear a voice from heaven saying these words. And they are not shocked by it. Does that jump out to anybody else? Because it sure jumps out to me. Like if we go out and we baptize and all of a sudden we hear this voice from heaven, we're stopping what we're doing. Like I don't know what just happened, but this is a moment that we don't want to forget. But why didn't this face him? The other thing we got to think about is that the words of the prophets had ended at the time of the book of Malachi. Then they go into this time called the, uh, what do they call it, the dead period, the silent period, like 400 years of where God did not speak to the prophets. Therefore, the word of the Lord was absent from the nation of Israel. This is a big thing. This is why many people feel like Daniel was written later in history than what it actually was, because Daniel prophesied that time frame, that 400-year period, down to the day of what was going to happen. It's incredibly powerful. We don't have the time to go into that. But this whole thing is weird to me, because if we hear a voice from heaven, there's something going on here. But what you don't know is here, is this is something in the, in the Hebrew mind called a bar or a bat kol, B-A-T, two words, K-O-L. It means daughter of the voices. 
is what the mean actually, or the meaning of the word actually is. And rabbinic experts taught that this would be like this echo voice that would be heard from heaven, frequently heard among ancient Israelites during this silent period. So the Lord wasn't speaking through the prophets, but he would speak this voice from heaven. So the period in prophets is about the 5th century with Malachi. From this point on, this bat coal is how God spoke. And rabbinic texts would say this echo voice would sound like a chirping bird or a cooing dove. Holy Spirit descending like a dove. You think Matthew's making a connection there? I think he is. But here's the thing to think about. Prior to this moment where Jesus is baptized and the Holy Spirit comes upon him, he had done no miracles. Not one. It wasn't like he did a few. He did zero. Now, how, why is that? Was he not the son of God, called by God, the, the creator of the world prior to that moment? Oh, absolutely he was. He absolutely was. But this is where we're going. It's talking about these three baptisms. So the first baptism that we're going to talk about is the baptism into Christ. And we see this in a couple of places. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. It says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you who as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. How are you baptized into Christ? Some make the argument it's water. It's the only way you can be saved. That's not what this is saying. So it may make you believe that maybe this word baptism doesn't mean everything that we think it does. Another one, Romans chapter 6 verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who, we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? We see that same thing. This is what we call salvation. That born-again moment that we are baptized in the Christ. But who does it? And that's the key. Who does the baptism into Christ? For that answer, we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Starting in verse 12. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, have, and have all been made to drink into that one spirit. So, who baptizes us into Christ? It's the Holy Spirit. Right? We see his role in this. So we got the Holy Spirit. baptizes us, you guys can read this, right? Into Christ. It's pretty clear. I mean, there's no argument about what's going on here. Even people that wouldn't think necessarily the way that we do about these three baptisms and whatnot would not argue the fact that it's the Holy Spirit who draws us to Christ. Therefore, we can become born again. But we see the statement baptized into Christ multiple times. And then we get to the fact that it says it was the Spirit who did it. One Spirit. How many spirits are there? There's one. That's the Holy Spirit. He baptizes us into Christ. Now, this is what we would call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we've got a language thing that we're talking about. The reason we call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit is because it was done by the Holy Spirit. So if you went to the house of the Griffins, you know that it is the Griffins who own the house. You guys see what I'm saying? Okay, just so I'll make it clear, because linguistically alone, we can build a case for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. There is a distinction. Now, 
We know about baptism in water. We hear about it all the time. If you grew up in church at all, I'm sure somewhere along the way that you have heard that statement made. And I'll explain it, but let's go to Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. This is a, an aligning yourself with Christ is all this is. Is that you have telling the world that I have made a change in my heart. And when I did that, I died with Christ and I was risen again with him. And so we look at baptism as you're going into the grave just like Christ did. But you're coming out that new man. It's just symbolic. Does somebody have to be baptized in water in order to be born again? No, they don't. Because now we're adding things to the process. Because Christ paid that for everybody. It's the Holy Spirit that brings us into Christ. But the baptism in water is important. It is a ceremony that we do. It is something that is aligning yourself with Christ. But who does it? What did we just see? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Holy Spirit, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Who is he talking to here? Jesus is talking to the disciples. So, disciples baptize in water. You notice it doesn't say... It doesn't say evangelists. It doesn't say prophets. It says disciples. If you are a follower of Christ, therefore you are a disciple of Christ. I'm a disciple of Christ. You're a disciple of Christ. That means who's qualified to baptize somebody in water? Anybody who's a born-again believer. There's no theological degree that you have to have in order to do this. It's the way it gets looked at, but it's not the way it should be. I had a friend of mine who... Uh, Given his life to Christ years ago, and then one day he just decided, you know what, I'm going to start preaching the gospel. And he was just going around his neighborhood talking to people, and he was baptizing people in his pool. And it was awesome. I was so excited to hear about it. It, just, it was just awesome, because he's going around there, and he was telling people about what Jesus had done. People were giving their life to Christ, and the only thing he had available was one of those Walmart inflatable ring pools, you know, where you blow up the tube, and you put it in the water, and it rises up, and they baptize people, and then they'd hang out and have a barbecue. So it was, it was a typical summer day. This time of year, that doesn't work as well. It's a little chilly. So we see the two baptisms here, right? The Holy Spirit baptizes us into Christ. The disciples baptize us in water. But now we've got to figure out what is this third one that we're talking about. It's the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now let's look at this in the Gospels. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. Okay. I indeed baptize you with water under repentance. Who's speaking here? John. John the Baptist. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What is the baptism in fire? Remember, fire was a purification. You'd go through the fire. It's a phrase that we use. They've been through the fire, they survived. Who baptized you there? Who's he? It's Jesus. All right, let's go to the next one. Mark chapter 1, verse 8. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Who is he? It's Jesus. Let's look at Luke chapter 3. Look at Luke. That's tough. John answered saying, oh, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Who does it? Jesus. Okay, let's look at one more. John 1, 33, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Who does it? Jesus does. So Jesus baptizes 
with the Holy Spirit. Now, strictly from looking at common grammar, can this and this be the same thing? It can't be. It, it's not possible. Theological stuff aside, you know, participling the, the Greek and looking at the, you know, arrowist tense and all of this really smart people do, that leaves me out. This just from a common sense, using language, these three things have to be distinct, do they not? I don't know how you can look at it any other way, because you've got the Holy Spirit doing it on the one hand, and then you've got Jesus on the other hand. I mean, there's, there's a lot going on here. Now, it says who would remain on him. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would fall upon people, and then he would live. You see him come upon the prophets, they would prophesy, he'd live. You see him come upon the kings, they would do their thing, and he would live. But what's interesting here, and this is, this is important, because in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all four talk about the death of Jesus, they all four talk about the burial of Jesus, and they all four talk about the resurrection of Jesus, and those are the only things that they have in common. Other than that, they go into different things, different miracles, all that kind of stuff. But there is one more thing that they all have in common. And it's this right here. That he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. You notice it's not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Can't be, because he's not the one performing it. We could call this the baptism of Jesus, because he is the one performing it. But what is he baptizing us with? It's the Holy Spirit. What did we see happen with Jesus? The Holy Spirit came upon him and descended, and he stayed. In other words, what does that mean? He is now immersed in the Holy Spirit. It has to be different. It cannot be the same. The reason I'm harping on that is because this is taught wrong in churches across the country. This isn't stuff I'm making up. This isn't because I have a charismatic background. This is because this is what it says. See, what they'll teach you across the country is that when you receive the Holy Spirit, that's it. There's nothing that comes after that. Well, there's problems with that, and a lot of them. And I'm going to get into those next week, and we're going to look at this to see exactly how this thing transpires. But there's more to that. Look in Luke chapter 24, verse 49. It says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Now think about this. These are the last words of the disciples. Or of Jesus to the disciples, I should say. He's getting ready. He's ascending into heaven. He's told them to go, therefore, into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of all nations, right? And the first thing he does is he tells them to wait. I want you to go sit in Jerusalem. They were there because of the feast. I want you to go sit in Jerusalem. I want you to hang out until what happens? Until you're endued with power from on high. Now, some will argue, oh, that's when the Holy Spirit was given. Well, we have a problem with that. At the end of John, it talks about how Jesus breathed on the disciples, and they received the Holy Spirit. Something different's going on. It's not the same thing. It can't be. Or we have a contradiction in Scripture. And if we have a contradiction in Scripture, we begin to have problems, don't we? You see, this isn't just a New Testament concept either, because we're going to look at all of this stuff next week. This is an Old Testament concept as well. This was something that was laid out prior to this. It was uh, given at a time when um, perhaps that we don't look at things and we don't see them the same way. But it's mentioned in 1 John chapter 5, and starting in verse 7. It says, for there are three that bear witness in heaven. Okay, three. The Father, the Word, who's the Word? It's Jesus. And the Holy Spirit. And these three are one, so they're together. Yes, it's the Trinity, it's the concept. 
and there are three that bear witness on earth. Where at? Here. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these are three agree as one. Okay? So we can see that. They're all coming together. The blood being the sacrifice of Jesus, the water being this baptism, and the Spirit? Wait a minute. They agree as one. As if maybe it was intended that everybody do this same thing. Because we have, we have the water, okay, baptism. Think about that, baptism in water. We have the blood. What is the blood? It was a sacrifice of blood. With the Passover lamb that was sacrificed in the uh, book of Exodus. That it wasn't the killing of the lamb, and it wasn't the shedding of the blood. It was the applying of the blood to the doorpost. If you did everything else right, but you did not apply the blood, the judgment would come upon you just like it did everybody else. It's no different today. The blood has been sacrificed. The lamb has been slain. But if you never apply that blood to your life, it's all for naught. So we know what the blood is. We know what the water is. But it talks about the spirit on earth. And they agree as one. All three agree as one. When I get saved, I become a new creation. When I'm water baptized, that old man is symbolically buried and brought out with Christ. But when I'm baptized in the Holy Spirit, I get the power to walk in as this new man, as the ambassador of Christ. So the question is, is do I only have two baptisms? Because I want, to, I want to show you something here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 1, it says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all the fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses, in the cloud, and in the sea. We'll go back to that. All ate the same spiritual food, and all drank that same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Verse 6. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages have come. Now let's look at this and let's go backwards. The end of the ages has come, right? Are we in the end of the ages? If we're not, we're closer than they were, right? If it's not happening in our lifetime... And we're a lot closer to it than they were, just by simple math, okay? So, but why were these written down? They were, happened to them as examples, and they were written for us to look back upon, right? It also said in verse 6, these become our examples. What are these, though? Go back to the very first one. Do I have that up there? Can we put that back up? There you go. I do not want you to be unaware of that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. What is it talking about? When they went through the Red Sea, right? The Lord parted the waters, they went through on dry land, closed the waters on Pharaoh and his, and his armies. And they were all under the cloud, the cloud that the fire by day, the cloud by night. The cloud would move, they would go with it, they'd follow it wherever it was, okay? The cloud is always symbolic of the Holy Spirit. It's used time and time again as the Holy Spirit all through Scripture. Water is used as this cleansing, this mikvah, as they went through. It was like they were baptized. But then it's this next part. They all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses 
in the cloud and in the sea. This here is talking about three different baptisms happening at three different occasions. Because in the Moses, Moses was a type of Christ. It tells us that in the New Testament. That he was a deliverer. He was the one that redeemed them from the Exodus. So they were baptized into Moses. Just like the Holy Spirit baptizes us into Christ. And then they were baptized through the sea. As an example of the disciples baptizing us in water. But this baptized in the cloud? There's only one thing this can be. It's the baptism in the Holy Spirit. You see, guys, the reason I'm harping on this and I'm laying this out here is we're setting up a foundation because next week we're going to get into more uh, in depth of what happens at this point. But Jesus did nothing until the Holy Spirit descended upon him and stayed. It's the promise of the Father. It's not that the Spirit's just within us. That's important. But that the Spirit upon us. This is how we walk through the life that Christ has given us. This is how we have all authority. Because I'm going to show you next week that there's authority in the name. Jesus gave his name to the disciples and they went out and did his work prior to the Holy Spirit being given. But the power to walk, the reason we lay hands on the sick and they recover is because of the baptism of the Spirit. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. The reason that we have authority over the enemy is through the power of the Spirit that's given to us. It must be important enough that Jesus didn't tell his disciples, hey, get to work, we've got a lot to do. He said, go hang out for 10 days. And we're going to look at that in Acts chapter 2 next week. Okay? You guys follow me. You guys see how these are distinct. There's no way around this. Just from a linguistic approach, just looking at scriptures, this is not stuff that we just made up. That word is used interchangeably, but they are done by different people. The Holy Spirit baptizes us into Christ. A disciple of Christ baptizes us in water. And Jesus is the one who baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. And those are words of John the Baptist, the one who Jesus said there'd been no greater prophet than John himself. You guys follow what I'm saying? Next week's going to be fun.